Today, if you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Exodus. We are now getting towards the end of the Ten Commandments, and I hope that you're learning. I know that I am, because there are times that I've covered some of these commandments, and I've thought to myself, I don't know if I ever would have really preached on that, and I guess more specifically today, like as far as a whole sermon on the subject, unless we were going through these Ten Commandments, because this one in and of itself feels very self-explanatory. That you hear it, you go, yeah, that's wrong, now let's move along. But I think there is an underlying tone and meaning to it that is, is just something that I've learned this week as we talk about the subject of stealing. And so as we talk about the subject, we're going to do so in such broad terms, and I'll explain this in just a second, that it doesn't affect some of us. If we're honest, we are all thieves. And so it affects all of us. But the opening idea in this eighth commandment, which is a prohibition against theft, you shall not steal. The, uh, steal. the opening idea is that stealing starts in the heart, just like all of these things. Stealing starts in the heart before it will ever manifest with your hands. There really is an ideology behind the theft. And I want you to remember that I said it because I'm going to come back to it. And just maybe as even a show of hands, have any, have any of you ever been a victim of theft? I'm not talking about like you were at a bank, someone came in with a gun, because like, that's not most of us. But I'm talking about like you, you got duped, or <clears throat> I, I can tell you one of the things that happens at New Life, and it's like there's going to be a special judgment for the people that would actually try to pull this off, is every so often there's another Rodney Johnson that's a pastor of New Life that will send a fictitious email to one of our staff asking them to transfer money to a special cause or a special ministry in some foreign bank account. And I remember the first time that happened, I just thought, man, there's like a special place, I'm going to be blunt, there's like a special place in hell for someone that would do that. That's, that's a terrible thing to do. And then I remember one time a few years ago, I was trying to sell a used couch on Craigslist. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do that, but someone, someone emailed me back and it's like, but they were going to give me a thousand more dollars for this old couch than I was even asking. And then all I had to do, don't worry, I didn't do it. All I had to do was send them $1,500 and go to Walmart. Have you guys ever been a part of something like that? And I thought to myself, because I'm impulsive, oh my goodness, I'm about to make a bunch of money. And then I thought, the greater thought, Rodney, you're an absolute moron. Don't send that money. And that these things happen. It's like theft just kind of exchanges methodologies, but the same principles apply. And so thousands of years ago in the Old Testament, God speaks to his people and he just says bluntly, thou shall not steal. So what we've been doing is answering questions. And here's the first one. What does the Bible say about it? Well, the Bible says, thou shall not steal. Defined by taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's like we could bring the kindergartners in over there and we could have this sermon. Taking something that does not belong to you. Taking the fruit of someone else's labor. And that then manifests in a lot of ways. No small issue, though. It's projected that around $50 billion a year in America alone is taken as a product of blatant theft. And so what happens in the Old Testament? What does the Bible say about what? Well, there's two things that possibly could have happened. And so write these down. The first thing in the Old Testament that was common was if you stole from someone, then you had to pay it back and you had to pay it back with interest. And it's just like what happens in court today. It's called restitution. That you have to be held accountable for that. And so in the book of Exodus, the next couple chapters, 22, verse 1, it says if a man steals an ox, and you can just insert iPhone, right? If a man steals an ox or a sheep, or if you're a farmer, just keep the analogy, 
uh, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. I don't know why that is five to four, but historically there's probably something going on to make that relevant. And so the idea is if you pay it back, you pay it back not only with what you take in, but you pick it back with incredible interest. You steal a car, you pay back with five cars, right? And so that's how that would work. And then God ups the ante, and we've been covering this with all of the commandments. There seems to be a common theme. The other thing that can happen is if you steal from God, you die, okay? That's a, quite the punishment, right? So it happens in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, they give to God, but they, don't, they lie about how much they give. God takes their life. In Joshua 7, there's a guy named Achan who is stolen from under the banner of God, God didn't just take his life, took his whole family's life. And and here's what's most ironic and sad. When he loses his life and his family loses his life because he's stingy, he's greedy, he's stealing from the Lord, and he's being dishonest when God deals with him, he was about to enter the promised land. Now think about that. And so in his greed and in his moment of, I have to have it, I want the world, I want the whole world, I have to have it now, in the, in the moment of taking on that mentality, he was already about to get something. And so here's what he does. He ends up robbing his tomorrow because he's too impatient for today. And that's what greed does. That's what the heart of a thief is all about. And so then theft takes all sorts of forms, which is why it covers all of us. It's an umbrella offense. We, we are not some of us thieves, but if you look at it more to the letter of the law, you've all been guilty. Let, let's explain that. And so there's the obvious, you know, you go and you rob a bank. Most people will never do that. Prison is a long time. There's cameras everywhere. It's a bad idea, right? But, but even like things that have happened in history that are atrocities like slavery. Slavery is the stealing of people. That's why it's so wrong. It's morally corrupt. God hates that type of thing. But then there's more subtle things that I've all, we've all been a part of. Business theft, overpricing merchandise. If you own a business for a value that is just way more than it's actually worth, it's not even reasonable, and you have a corner on the market, so you capitalize. And so if you own a movie theater, I have always disdained you. You go in there and you sell a kidney for some popcorn, and then your kidneys need to help with the popcorn, so it's just a train wreck. But, but I mean, there's this reality of businesses do that, and then Aberdeen can be guilty of that as well. You rip off people, why? Because you can. Or how about credit card theft? Not the stealing of credit card, but the owning and abusing of credit cards or the people who own the credit card companies themselves. So it's not just an interest rate, but someone's at a low point, someone needs some help, and so then they're right there to charge exuberant amounts for interest rates that they can never pay off, and they keep paying the minimum, and they actually owe more a few months later than they even owned originally. It's an absolute train wreck, and it takes advantage of people all the time. This is a form of theft. Tax theft. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, the Bible tells us. And so all of those things that you do when you file your taxes that you think no one will ever catch you for, the mileage that you turn in. Uh, the professional fees that you exaggerate, the grocery bills and your private business that you inflate, whatever it is, that's a form of theft. Or on the flip side, the government themselves, and it's like it's South Dakota, so now everyone says amen, right? The government can steal. We're supposed to be taxed to pay Caesar what is Caesar, but what happens when we're overtaxed? What happens when our tax dollars aren't used appropriately? Amen? I know you're thinking it, right? What happens? Well, How about this one? We're all guilty. Time theft. That you have an eight-hour shift, you work six hours, and you're like, well, I can check my Facebook for two. It is estimated in America that there are billions of dollars stolen through limited productivity across America every single year. Employer theft. 
business theft. You write a contract. If you're a contractor, you say it's going to cost this much to fix that. And then you send the bill and it's 30% higher. Or, or you're an employer and you have someone who is not being paid a fair wage because you think you can get away with it and they'll never quit. And James chapter 4 says, not giving those in the hot sun their fair wage is a sin. Merchant theft. We get money, you go to Kessler's to buy a, you know, a power bar or something to drink or whatever, and all of a sudden it's like $4, and, then they, and you give them a 20 they give you 40 back. And it's like, well, that's God's blessing on my life. No, that's, that's stealing. It's like, oh, isn't that like finding a lot of corners on the sidewalk? It's not wrong, right? These things happen to us all the time. And then the assumption that's so dangerous is this. They don't need it, so I'm going to take it, and I'm entitled to have it. And the greatest offense is stealing against God himself. And what's so scary about all of this, and the reason this is dangerous, is because there is an ideology that God gives us into understanding why he gives us resources, and then how we're supposed to use it. And the, the idea behind it that the Bible talks about in Timothy and in Titus is this idea of stewardship. Write that down. Why is this such a big deal? So God lays out 10 things, and there's certain things like last week that if you missed, you can go back and listen to, and you go, well, that's why that's in the Bible, and that's why it's the top 10, because we, last week we had this awkward tension of talking about adultery. And if you don't know why adultery is wrong, you've never been cheated on, okay? So that, that's obviously a horrible thing. But then it's something like stealing, and you think, well, that's wrong, but should that be in the top 10? Should that be in the same context of killing someone? And God says, yes, it should, because there's an ideology or a theology behind it that we have to understand. And, and here's the principle. I'm going to lay it out for you now, and then I'm going to repeat it later. The principle is this, that Satan, in his very essence comes to do something. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so Satan, in his very makeup, is a taker. And so when you steal, you take. You elevate self, and you take. Jesus comes, and he empties himself. And so the idea is this, and don't miss it, that Jesus Christ, who we're called to follow, empties himself, and he's a giver. And the enemy, at the heart of the enemy, his main motivation is to take. And so when we steal, it's deeper than what we take, it's we have the heart of the enemy operating within us. But within the Bible, there's an idea of stewardship. And stewardship looks like this. This is how it was explained to me. That when you die one day and all your millions of dollars that you're going to leave to your kids, because, I mean, that's how that works, right? But whatever you leave to your kids, maybe it's $10, whatever it is, uh, you leave them an estate, <clears throat> And you give that to them, not for them to have it. This is what stewardship looks like from God. But so that they can then, whoever the manager of this state is. Like, so when Anne's family goes to be with Jesus, she's the oldest child. And her husband's the most responsible adult. And so they have said, you're going to manage the estate. You're going to distribute the funds. And that's what stewardship looks like. It's not yours. It's passed down to you with the very clear intent that you're to take what's not yours. And then you're going to distribute it to the people that God's designed to have it. That's the role that God has in the Bible of when we say yes to Christ, we become a steward of the resources and the finances that he's giving us. And so when we take, we are living with the exact opposite view of how God would call us to live. And so then for that reason, because it's a hard issue, it's a massive, massive deal to God. And so the next question is this, well, why do, why do we do it? Well, sin, right? Sin, but more specifically, what are the specific sins? Why do we steal? Why do we have the heart of a taker? 
Number one, the Bible would lay out, we're just, we're greedy, we're sinners. Why do we take? Why do we have greed? We live in this place of discontentment with what God has provided for us. And so since God has let us down and we didn't get our wants met, not our needs, our wants met, then we feel entitled to take whatever we see fit. We will take from someone else because we deserve it and they don't. And what what I thought about this morning, I want to share this idea with you, that theologically this is so critical because what you're doing is elevating yourself to God, a position of God-like status. And what you're saying is that person that in your greed you're taking from is less than human. You're labeling them as less than human when you take from them. And so greed is motivating our hearts. And how about this one? Just flat out materialism. That's why we steal. That we want what we want and we have an image to uphold, a standard to live by. Materialism defined by not how much we have, but when the physical takes precedence over the spiritual. Materialism not identified by how much money and resources are at your fingertips, but materialism identified by this reality that lives in your heart that you need to look a certain way to impress people who don't care about you or love you so that somehow you can prove to yourself through your insecure status that you have value. And the irony of materialism is you don't have to be rich to be materialistic. Do you know what I'm talking about? You don't have to be rich. Some of the poorest people I've ever met are the most materialistic. They have the nicest pair of shoes that they bought with a credit card. They have a nicest car that they can't afford because they're insecure and they're trying to put off this persona that they look a certain way. And you can be materialistic and you can be broke. In in fact, most of the time, people that are materialistic are broke. But you have what you can't afford and you're putting on an image or trying to uphold an image. Here's another one, motives. Refusal to trust God. That's where it's theological. That God gives you what you need, but you have certain wants that you've identified. And because he's not giving them to you, then you're going to go get them for yourself. And then the Bible says, thou shall not steal. Thou shall not steal. It's saying, God, I'm going to go out and get mine because I'm about me. And I'm going to get my needs met by whatever means necessary. And here's what you're doing. And here's why it's scary. You are saying, in essence, I'm God. I'm calling the shots. And it's not going to trust God with the resources that he's given. Here's the next idea. Maybe like a biblical overarching principle. If that's all true, which I don't think you can say it's not, well, then the next thing becomes this. How, how should I even look at my wealth? There's, there's three different ways that you look at it, and we all do it. But how, how should I see this, this wealth that God's given me with? And for some of us, it's a lot. And for some of us, it's, it's just barely anything. But regardless of your financial status, in the idea of how you use it, how does God want you to understand it? How should I look at my wealth? Here's the first thing that, that a lot of people do. This is kind of a Midwestern idea because it's all about fairness and it's all about what you deserve. And the idea would be this for the first person in the room. It would be what's mine is mine. And so it's a little bit more ethical than what's mine is yours. And we'll get to that in a second. But what's mine is mine says I've worked hard. I've earned it. And it's mine. So what you have, here's the ethic of it. What you have is yours. I'll concede. But what I have, well, that's mine. How how does that manifest in real life? It's a person that lacks generosity. 
It's a person that lives with a certain level of entitlement. Let's get real specific. Look at me. It's a person that goes to a restaurant and doesn't tip. Or maybe they tip a little bit, but they're thinking to themselves, well, they already make 2 or $3 an hour waiting tables. Why would I need to do more? It's a dangerous type of position when you say what's fair is fair and what's mine is mine. I was telling the first service this morning, I was in college and I was working at a Mexican restaurant in college when I was in Texas before I came to, to North Dakota. And uh, is anyone from the South? Not one person. Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you're from the South, if you're from the South, there's a Mexican restaurant that's a chain franchise. I don't know if it still exists, but Robert would know. Right? It's called El Chico. You tracking? And El Chico was not exactly high-end, and I was in college, and I was making, you know, a few bucks an hour and then waiting tables, and I know this is going to shock you, but I was terrible at it, and so I was always kind of messing things up, but uh, on Taco Wednesday, it had a nickname. It wasn't El Chico. It was called El Chipo, and it was called that because it was a discount night, and then everybody, everybody, everybody would tip you just absolutely terrible, and so I remember uh, there was a middle-aged couple and they were patting me on the head, and I already was bombing. Like, there was nights I was making 20 bucks on a long shift. And uh, uh, Ann struck gold when she met me. I was just such an entrepreneur. But I was making no money, and I was working my tail off. And there was this couple that came in, and they had a mine-is-mine mine mentality, and you have to earn it. And maybe if you're a good boy, you know, Rodney, as a 19-year-old, then we can bless you a little bit. And they were probably like those stingy Christians that everyone gets uncomfortable with. And, uh, and they, they did this thing. And I don't know if I've ever told this story in church, but if I have, just live with it. They put $4 on the table, right? They put $4 on the table, and they said, young man, and I remember thinking, oh, golly shucks, $4. This is the 90s, not the 50s, okay? I'm not that old, right? And so it's like $4. And they said, young man, we want to tip you well. And I'm going, 4 bucks, right? But I was like, oh, thank you. They said, but each time you make a mistake, we're going to just take one of these dollars back. And $2 later, I walked away the richest man in El Chipo, right? So I, I just remember that couple and it's like they looked at me with this grin as if they were lavishing their resources on me in a way that was so, st I never forgot that story. I, I went to the kitchen and I was new in my faith. I had just become a Christian. And I said all sorts of Jesus loves me's to the cooks who had broken English in the back, right? I was just, it was appalling to me that someone would treat me like that. And I called my mommy and I cried for hours when I got off shift. But I'll never forget that story because it's just at the heart of that story. It's like a form of theft. It's just what's mine is mine. And if you're a good boy, then maybe I'll share just a smidge. Another way to see your resources is what I just said. What's, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. And so it doesn't matter who stands in the way. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to lie on my taxes. I'm going to create some type of scheme to get my needs met. I'm a professional who's going to build two clients for the same billable hour. I'm going to overcharge for labor on a construction bid. It's okay because what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. Incredibly unethical. And at the heart of it is I deserve to have what is yours because I'm more important than you. In fact, in my narcissism, I'm more important than everyone else. What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine. And then here is the biblical remedy. What's mine, what's mine, write it down, is his. And I'm going to share it because it's not even mine to give. And so, of course, I'm going to share it. 
of course I'm going to lavish this thing on you because I'm just a steward that's taking the funds and distributing them. And when that's done, that's powerful. When that's done, that's humble. When that's done, that's gospel-centered. Last question. How do I surrender this area of my life to Jesus? Because if we're going to just be honest, then none of us are innocent. All of us, in some way, have been a part of stealing. So then what do you do? And then what's interesting is the Bible actually speaks specifically to it. And it's so simple that you just miss it. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, and I want you to hear something that he says. In chapter 4, 28, so here's what's going on. Let me set it up. Ephesus is a train wreck. Ephesus is morally bankrupt, and people are getting saved out of it. And so they had a temple that they worshipped a god, Diana, in that was really a god of uh, sexual impurity and just all sorts of stuff that would make even today's culture blush. And so they were going to these temples, they were partaking in these activities, and then they were also just looking out for number one. And so then Paul speaks to these people that are getting saved, and they're still living a lifestyle that's morally bankrupt, and he says this, he gives a remedy. He says, if you want to live like Christ, and that's the mandate, if the Holy Spirit's living in you, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. So you used to do these things, but now you're a Christian. And then here's the remedy within it. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. And some translations say work hard, not just work, work hard. Doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share. And this is what's so critical, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so there's a motive. There's a, there is a diagnostic. The problem is that you're a thief. The problem is that you're lazy. The remedy is you need to work hard. And then the thing that then becomes fruit from that is that you don't live the way you used to live. What's mine is mine. You're saying, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to pour out. I'm going to tip well. I'm going to pick up the tab at a restaurant. I'm going to bless that person in need. I'm going to be perfectly cool with, with New Life taking the $1.3 million of revenue that was brought in in 2022 because of all of our generosity, and I'm going to be perfectly fine with them going, we're not going to build a castle here. We're going to send it to people in third world countries in the, in the tone of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and people are going to be fed, and people are going to be taken care of, and people are going to hear the gospel, that we're going to take everything we have, we're going to put it right back in. We're going to take it and send it right back out. And so what that means for me practically is I'm not going to take a percentage of the tithe. I just get a salary. If we tithe a billion dollars, fine, but it's not mine. I'm not some like overt televangelist that goes, wow, Aberdeen, this is a big tithing church. And well, I better get my jet plane. No, I get what I get based on a salary that's fair. And then everything else goes back out, other pastors included, to do the work of the gospel. Because my job is to work hard. If I'm a pastor, I work hard. If I'm a counselor, I work hard. If I'm at El Chipo, I work hard, right? That's what we do, and that's the remedy. That's the prescription. You used to steal, but now you need to work hard, and now you need to be generous. And, and it seems like common sense, but remember when we talked about a few weeks ago, and we talked about the day of rest that God's called us to take? But then we looked at the other side of the text where it said, okay, now the other six days you're called to work hard. And we looked at what's going on with culture, specifically with men, men ages 25 to 57, the key part of the workforce in America, as far as males are concerned, and they are dropping out of the workforce in the, in the tone of millions of men are saying, nah, I'm good. And how devastating that is to things like 
you know, just a fruitful economy. It's not common sense. And, and what I can tell you about this is because this is where the church is a light in darkness. It's the salt of the earth. This is something that we show the world around us, not that we're cheap Christians that aren't generous. This is where we show the world around us. We're going to work harder than everyone else because Jesus is doing something in us. And so, dads, this is something that we model to our young men in our family. That we're not stingy, that we're generous. That the people in our extended family know us as a family that's generous. This is what it looks like to be a young man. This is what it looks like to be a man. Most of our parenting as fathers is not taught, it's caught. We put this on display. My daughter, she's 13. She's not paying attention right now. But she's 13 years old and she sent me a text at 11.17 last night. And uh, she probably thought I didn't read it, but I did. And it was absolutely profound. She said, moms turn babies into boys, and dads turn boys into men. And I'm like, Ari, just drop the mic right now. Just do it. Moms turn babies into boys. Boys, dads turn boys into men. And so we teach this. This idea, we show our kids generosity, we show our kids hard work, we show them that that's what biblical masculinity looks like. It's worked so well with my oldest son that he has become an absolute genius at spending my money. Like, he, he's so generous, the basketball team's in the back right now, he'll buy them all dinner. And just like, hey, put it on Rodney. He takes his girlfriend out, hey, let's go somewhere nice, it doesn't matter, I've got my dad's card. I mean, he has absolutely owned this. But hard work defined... <laughs> Hard work defined as, man, this is what it looks like to be a man. And so maybe you're in a life stage where you can't get a lot of time, hours in your job. And uh, one of the things Joey jokes about, he's like, I'm a full-time student athlete. I'm like, oh, where are you going to college? He's going, oh, I don't have that plan. But uh, he's like, uh, you know, he, he works hard. Like when, when Joey was a little kid, I mean, work hard. When Joey was a little kid, he was a, he was a big kid. And I just read between the lines, he was a big kid. And uh, he ended up on this really good basketball team where there's college athletes, and every year they go to state, and, and it kind of hit him when he got in middle school. If I don't change some habits, like one of the things he told me, he said, Dad, I really want to be in shape, but I really love French fries. Joey Johnson, sixth grade. And I was in the parking lot going, we have a problem. But work ethic, it supersedes, you know, every life stage. There's always a way to work hard. And so, like, in middle school, he started working out. And then he became really good friends with his football coach at Ron Colley, who's the basketball coach at, at, at Ron Colley as well. And like every morning, 6 a.m., they're pumping iron. They're putting on loud music. They're lifting weights because he's saying, I have to work hard on this stage. And then the next stage, if he doesn't have a full-time job and fruitful and multiplying, providing for his wife and providing for his kids, there's going to be shame between us in a sense because this is what God's called him to do. Amen? We work hard. And that's a recipe for how then we are generous, but that's a way when we work hard that we have a heart that is about giving instead of taking. It's a heart that wants nothing to do with stealing. And the reality of that mindset is that when we live that way, then we can understand the heart of Jesus Christ. In fact, when we live that way, everyone around us pays attention. The heart of Jesus is to give. The heart of Satan is to take. Last thing, praise man, I hope you're ready. You've got to address the restlessness. 
just my idea in my head, take it or leave it, but I think I'm right. The reason we have a heart of a thief is because we live in a heart space that's never satisfied. Consume, 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 consume. It's, it's like lust. It's a quick fix. It's an easy way out. It's I hope I can win the lottery so I don't have to step it up and do something. I'm just going to buy this ticket. It's the thrill of the chase. And within all of that is an idea that I'm going to look out for someone. The person I'm going to look out for is number one. The heart of the thief is always centered on self-preservation and control. The heart of the thief is always looking for a quick fix and an easy way out. No 6 a.m. workouts. No vision for the future. It's right here, right now. I deserve. And then you compare that to the thieves that died with Jesus. I was, I was looking at that actually this morning. I went back and read it when I came in here. It's like when you talk about stealing, there's a case study at the end of it all. Jesus is on the cross. He's got a thief to his right and to his left. They get into a little word exchange. One doesn't get it and one does, and it encompasses everything we just talked about. The first thief says, save me and yourself. You're the son of God. So in his arrogance, he looks at Jesus, and what he does appropriately is he recognizes who Jesus is. He says, Jesus, you're the son of God. Get off the cross. Oh, and by the way, I don't really deserve to be up here. All I did was steal a few things. I, mean, I'm just, I have the heart of a thief. Well, why don't, while you're at it, because you're God, because you can get off the cross, why don't you save me as well? Because I sure don't want to die on this thing. And then the second man looks at him and he calls him out. He has a heart that takes responsibility. He says, don't you fear God? And what in essence he's saying is, have you not checked what's going on culturally around us? We have paid the penalty that we deserve. We have looked out for number one, and now we're being held accountable. We have considered us, ourselves, at a, at, a, at a level that's more important than everyone around us. We have stolen. We have cheated. We have lied. We are the scum of the earth. And so he says, this is the Son of God. He says, don't you fear God? We deserve to be on this cross, but Jesus Christ has done nothing wrong. And then he says humbly, when he positions himself accurately, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then what does Jesus say? We all know this, right? This is, it's not like he has a degree in theology. He doesn't even exactly get all the tenets, but he says to Jesus Christ, he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says this to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The first thief is entitled. The second thief gets the gospel and says, I don't deserve. I don't deserve, but Jesus, I believe. That's the heart of a giver. I don't deserve anything, but Christ already paid for me. And then when you believe this, I'm going to pray. When you believe this, look at me. How can you not be generous? How can you not be generous? When Jesus already gave you absolutely everything, the air that you breathe, the life that you live, the eternity that you can have because of him and him alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that we can have in you. Help us to build a work ethic that's centered around you. Help us to own a theology that puts you in the front seat. God, we thank you for, for all the generosity in this space, for the budgets that are being met, for the people that are being saved, for the lives that are being rescued. 
We give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray this in your name, everybody said. Amen.